Hi, everybody. Wow, it's been a while since I put out a new episode, almost a month. So thank you for your patience and thank you for coming back to listen. Rest assured, I have no intention of stopping. I was just happily taking a break in Thailand. Now I'm back and we have a lot of exciting things happening. Right now we're doing two giveaways. The first giveaway is happening now exclusively for Mind Your Body newsletter subscribers. If you're subscribed to the newsletter, you will be automatically entered. If you're not a subscriber, that's okay. You can sign up by February 26th and you will still be entered in. I'm giving away two free spots into my Conquer Goals e-course. Right now, we have an amazing group of 15 people taking it from all over the world. This course is a step-by-step guide on how to meet any goal with a combination of movement exploration, journaling, and group support, including a video call at the end of the course. You can check out the podcast episode notes for a link to sign up for the newsletter and a preview of what the course is all about. Our second giveaway is a free six-month Conscious Dancer membership. This is an amazing and easy service to advertise a workshop, a course, a retreat, or something else that you're promoting to over 10,000 movers around the world. If you don't have something to market, you can still get access to exclusive practice building videos. I'm loving your support, everybody, and I wanted to share a quote here from one of our listeners, Katie Fotis. This podcast is filling me up with warm energy and thankfulness that this knowledge exists. Please keep the stream of life to the subject alive. It's exciting me. Thank you so much. That really warms my heart. That really fills my heart to hear. Okay. So today we're going to hear from Jenny McGrath, who has been doing extensive research and practice on therapeutic dance in northern Uganda. Jenny is a mental health counselor associate, and today she comes onto the show to talk about how important it is to tune into our bodies to recover from trauma. In this episode, you'll hear tips and research supporting why we cannot neglect our body in trauma work. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. My name is Jennifer McGrath, and I'm a licensed mental health counselor associate um, and have a master's in counseling psychology. And so I have a private practice here uh, in Seattle, Washington, and I really have a strong emphasis and focus on somatic healing, specifically for adults working through complex trauma. Um, So I do a lot of integration of attachment. Um, and limbic system and more visceral forms of healing and working through trauma. Uh, And a lot of that has stemmed out of about almost coming up to 10 years of work that I've done in northern Uganda, uh, where I kind of started my adventures in in healing and therapy. Um, And I've been researching and studying how movement and dance can be used therapeutically with soldiers. Um, So I've been working on um, integrating different exercises and different teachings with Ugandan psychotherapists and kind of formulating what works, what doesn't work within cultural contexts. Awesome. (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, so you said that you work with complex trauma. Who do you work with? What kinds of trauma do they typically come in with? Yeah. Um, so I work primarily with adults um, working through issues of more early childhood trauma. So I see a lot of cases of early childhood sexual abuse or physical abuse, neglect, emotional abuse, um, specifically where there's been um, a rupture in safety growing up, where someone didn't have a healthy attachment figure or didn't have a healthy community where they were able to process through or express or experience um, difficulties or hardships that they went through growing up. Yeah. So I love that you use a somatic approach to this kind of trauma and trauma in general. Why do you choose to include the body and do you use movement also? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, And a lot of it has stemmed out of my own journey. I grew up as a dancer and dance and movement were always something that was just innately part of who I am. Um, And I really believe that in any of our spheres, especially if we're in healing professions, um, that it should come out of who we are. Um, And so movement and dance is what I have found to be most true for who I am. And it's also been very therapeutic for me, um, just working through a lot of my own struggles, my own difficulties in life, just having a place where I could go and physically put movement, put breath, put stillness and get to just embody different expressions that I didn't have words for. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it is also uh, based on our most recent findings in trauma research is that we're learning trauma is a nonverbal or a preverbal experience. And so when we have trauma or traumatic stress, um, our, our brain that has reasoning or language goes offline. And so trauma gets stored in our limbic system. Uh, a lot of that you're finding pop up in various different research right now. A huge influence for me has been uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Um, he came out with The Body Keeps the Score a couple years ago that um, I think does a really good job explaining why we need expressive and somatic modalities when we're going to be engaging healing, especially with trauma, um, because it's stored limbically and in parts of the body that talk therapy just can't access. Yeah, that's so important. How would you turn, let's say you have a private practice client a client who comes in with some history of trauma and they are talking about it, how do you turn that into something that they can explore with their body and with movement? So I think there's there's two primary things that I always think about going into story or going into working through trauma. Uh, one is to make sure that there's an establishment of a healthy relationship and attachment between me and my client. 
Um, because another thing that we're finding out uh, in trauma research is that it's not even as much the event that happens. Uh, it's when someone doesn't have a place to go with what has happened. Um, so it takes time to be able to establish the safety for the client to really engage their body. Um, and so then the way that we would do that when there is safety, when there is containment, um, is primarily through awareness. So I'll start to ask questions like, what are you noticing in your breathing? What are you noticing in your belly? What are you noticing in your hands? Um, David Emerson calls this interoception, basically just bringing awareness to our body. Um, because a lot of times when someone has gone through extensive trauma, there's a, a dissociation or a disconnection from their body. And so Many times if you ask someone who's been in a lot of trauma in the beginning, you know, what is your stomach feeling? You'll probably get an answer that says, I don't know. Um, and that's okay. That's not wrong or bad. That's just how their body has learned to survive right. and to navigate their experiences. So we'll start by bringing awareness to the body or awareness to the lack of awareness. So, okay, you don't notice your chest. You don't feel your stomach. Uh, can you notice your fingertips? And then as time goes on, we'll kind of progress that to when there is more feeling. Um, you know, it's common that a client will say, I feel heaviness or I feel tension in my chest or in my stomach. Um, and so then I usually just say, you know, is, is there a sound or a facial expression or a body posture or a movement that would express whatever that feeling is. Um, and that will look as unique as the clients that I see. So sometimes that will look like growling. Sometimes that will look like throwing a pillow on the ground. Um, it basically begins in this very um, primal experience of what the sensation or the feeling is. Um, and then we can kind of grow that to more expressive forms for some clients that might be um, drawing or painting or dancing um, based on what is true for them and how they have learned to express. Yeah, that sounds great. And I imagine the process varies in time depending on how long it takes for the person to build trust with you. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Um, I kind of always give a disclaimer of the, the process will usually take longer than than we want it to. Um, but I think that that actually gives a lot of honor to the different experiences that people have had, that there's a reason that clients have learned to not trust or there's a reason they've learned to disconnect from their bodies. And so to create space to honor all that they have endured, I think creates its own sense of safety for them to, to reintegrate back into themselves. Yeah. And, and, and most trauma, unless it was kind of a natural disaster or some kind of accident or collision, it happens in the context of relationships. So that is definitely one of the hardest parts of the work is establishing a trusting therapeutic relationship and all the feelings that come up within that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially when we're dealing with um, sexual trauma or more personal traumas of the such, it's, it's usually from a very intimate relationship, someone that was very trusted, someone that was a member of the family, 
Um, and so therefore trust, vulnerability, all of these things become really scary and really dangerous to feel. And I think we we see enough in in stories of re-victimization where there there can be a, a learned way of being that causes people to live in a way where there is no safety, no no connection, no network around them. And so then we see trauma beget trauma um, and an abuse beget more abuse until we can kind of break that cycle. But that does become in and of itself, it's kind of teetering very closely on the line to um, if the client is somatically experiencing and working through their abuse, that's uh, you're coming very close to the line of, of reenactment and what that is. And so I think that's especially why it's never something that I want to rush into um, because that safety and that containment needs to be there when those big feelings and sensations come up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like the foundation of your work is building awareness of a client's uh, what's going on in the person's body, um, what kind of sensations are coming up and just building self-awareness about almost kind of a sense of self through body sensations. And that's the first the first step you take. I I tend to use the analogy of it's kind of when they've been used to those sensations or those feelings being a tidal wave that that ta- that takes them out. I think our work is kind of lifting them above those waves so they can still see them, they can still experience them, but they don't become overwhelming or they they don't become something that's so big um, they can't manage after our session is done. Mm-hmm. So it's really a matter of allowing them to feel, but helping them regulate their emotions around the sensation. Is that where a lot of your work is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And a lot of times I've seen with clients, whether it's cultural or familial or um, kind of these systemic issues of emotions being shameful, being embarrassing, being bad. Um, and so a lot of times when a client has had a pretty strong visceral reaction or emotion, um, one thing I'll say is, you know, what are you seeing on my face? Um, and really bringing that awareness back to the interpersonal piece, um, because a lot of times there's going to feel like shame or self-consciousness in those moments. Mm-hmm. And it can feel like it even illuminates the shame to say, hey, my face is still here. We're still together. Um, but then it creates this visceral experience of, oh, wait, your face isn't shaming me or you're not judging me. Um, because I think as just as trauma is stored limbically, we can store healing experiences limbically as well um, that will create a new neural pathways for us that can say, oh, well, that one time when I got very angry, Jenny didn't shame me. So maybe I have a little bit more freedom to be angry with my partner or my best friend or things like that. Mm -hmm. Basically taking what they experience with you and your therapeutic relationship, having the person actually make eye contact with you or look at you or not dissociate somehow and stay present in the relationship. A practice of that can help them practice that outside of the therapy. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the most honoring thing for me in working with trauma survivors is that they are 
some of the most resilient people that I know. Um, and I think the difficulty that that can become is this sense of independence or isolation from other relationships. Um, and so at times it can be new to learn, oh, wow, I actually experience something or I receive something when I'm vulnerable or when I don't have to be so strong or resilient. Yeah. It's common for anyone. And I visualize and witness myself doing this too, is looking down or looking somewhere else when I feel ashamed. And I'd rather avoid seeing how you are looking at me than take a chance and see that you're looking and accepting me. So it's, yeah, it's definitely helpful to have someone there who can genuinely express non-judgment and, and help the person experience that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's our, our innate response is like to turn the face away when there's a feeling of someone is going to be unhappy or shaming of me. Yeah. So is there anything else that you do, like certain exercises or? Yeah, yeah. I do a lot of um, breathing and mindfulness, um, especially when a client can feel either hyper aroused, so they're going to be super anxious or feeling flooded or hypo aroused, where maybe they're having even a hard time staying awake. Um, And both of those can be ways that we cope from experiencing our emotions as too much. Um, And so a lot of what I'll do is, is bring awareness through mindfulness or through breathing. And so um, beginning even by bringing awareness to the room. Uh, it's, it's amazing how, how common it is to not pay attention to our surroundings. Um, so I'll typically just start by saying, you know, find four or five things that you notice in the room around you. Um, and then maybe what are three or four things that you can notice yourself touching? Um, and then if the client feels comfortable, I'll say you can close your eyes and notice two or three things that you hear. Um, and then through that, bringing their awareness even more kernelly, just say, you know, what are you noticing about your breath? Um, are you breathing all the way down into your lower belly or is your breath stopping up in your chest? Um, are you breathing super fast or are you allowed to slow down and take deeper, fuller breaths? Um, our, our breath is connected to our limbic system. So as we exhale slowly and deeply, we're actually triggering our body's parasympathetic nervous system, which is telling the body danger is clear. Um, when we're breathing shallow, it's basically our body communicating you're being chased by a lion. And so our immune system, our digestion, everything that we need day to day stops so that we can jump into fight, flight, freeze mode. Um, And so the work that we do is allowing the body, um, Bessel van der Kolk also says, like our goal is letting the body know that the trauma has passed, um, that we can breathe deeply, that we can settle. Um, And then I've I've seen that to affect all areas of life. Um, So we become less reactive with our partners, with our friends, with our coworkers, Um, We become more able to handle the difficulties and the stresses that are part of life. Yeah, definitely. I mean, fear and memory are so closely tied in the brain. So it makes sense to kind of experience the body 
separate from the the event, the trauma and the fear. Right. Yeah, cuz our our limbic system doesn't have reasoning abilities. So when we feel fear or other experiences that we may have in the midst of the trauma, um our body, our limbic system doesn't have the ability to say I'm watching rape on the television or I'm watching a car accident on the television. Our limbic system is saying that is happening to me. Um, and so for someone who's been triggered um, or who has been through significant trauma, anything could be a trigger. Someone's way of chewing, someone's color of their shirt. Um, and so then all day, every day, you have your limbic system saying, we are in trauma. And so until the body's able to express and work through an experience that that trauma has completed, then it's just going to replay that cycle over and over again. Mm -hmm. Do you have to take a lot of breaks with your clients of going into the body? And is there are there certain times where your clients will respond in a way that's that's extremely threatening to them? And how do you help regulate that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think it, it comes through like, we won't get into more significant trauma stories until there is a significant toolkit of this is what you do when you're flooded. This is what we do when you're flooded. Um, and so even if a client, if we're, we've done a lot of work and we're approaching a trauma story and I notice they're not breathing or their breath is really shallow or they haven't looked into my eyes in the last few minutes, um, then that's when I'll, I'll continue to check in and say, what are you noticing? Would it be helpful if we do a breathing exercise? Like, just notice what's happening. And so we bring the awareness shifting kind of back and forth between story and body. And when story becomes overwhelming, then we always will shift back to, okay, what is your body experiencing? What's triggering that? How do we regulate that? So that there's always a, a containment that not to say that they're not emotional when they leave my office, but making sure that there's enough groundedness that their limbic system is saying, I'm triggered, but I'm safe. I'm, I'm in this office. I've touched this couch. I see Jenny's face. Like I'm not where my body is saying I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How long do you typically, or just a range of, um, seeing how long it takes people to really start internalizing those practices. Like, I don't know how long you've seen your clients at this point, but do you see them doing it on their own? Do you, do they start saying, okay, I need a break? Or is that a lot of you saying, okay, let's take a break or let's look at me or let's look around the room and so on and so forth? Totally. Yeah. Um, the, the length of time definitely depends on the client. Like I have, I have clients currently that I've worked with for years. Um, and I've had clients that I've seen for a, a few months and then they're like, okay, I'm good. And I'm like, okay, awesome. Um, but that is a hope that there's enough of them coming into their own, um, and feeling safe enough with me. Um, because e even like I, 
I I like to think that I'm uh, somewhat equipped for what I do and I know that I'm human. So for them to be able to say like, I don't actually like that question that you asked me or I don't want to tell you that story. And for me to be able to say like, okay, uh, thanks for being honest with me or, um, or feeling angry or like, you know, you were two minutes late to our session today and being able to advocate for themselves. Um, I actually see as a healthy and important part of our work of when I can start to fail them, um, not <laughs> intentionally, but when that is allowed to happen and, and there can be a sense of them like rupture and repair where our, our relationship can be us being two separate people, um, but also me still being able to support them along the way. Yeah. And it's so important for them to experience, to express frustration or anger or disappointment with you and for you to be able to contain that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the hardest thing I've seen for clients to be able to say or to express um, is, when they're upset with me or when they're angry at me. And, and usually that comes with its own story of um, being punished or, or being left when there are strong feelings of anger or disappointment. Um, and so I, I, I see it actually as one of the goals of the therapeutic process for my clients yeah. to be able to get angry at me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I actually have a similar goal. <laughs> And it's so hard, especially working short term in my setting that we we rarely get there. But yeah, it's it's a lot of times expressed in a in a way that um, is avoided or I can't help contain it because, you know, they'll, they'll walk away or I had a client who had pseudo seizures. So she would faint when she was upset with me. And um, Ooh, yeah. I, we, we worked long enough that actually she could sort of end up expressing that to me. But you know, when someone's fainting, that's a really hard, it's really yeah. hard to uh, facilitate that expression. Yeah. And I think sometimes, especially earlier in the work, a lot of times clients will act out what they're not even consciously aware of. Um, so I think a lot of times it just comes to being curious with them of like, you know, I, I said this comment that I don't think you really liked, and then you canceled our sessions the next two weeks. Uh, do you think there could be any correlation there? Um, and just getting to bring curiosity and wonderment to what might be enacted that feels too scary to say, but gets to be, oh, you came 30 minutes late to our session today. How come? Um, and and just getting to have curiosity there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good for them to have someone, good for all of us to have someone in our lives where we can say, like, I'm pissed at you or you, yeah. you disappointed me. And for them to not, you know, walk away or shut down or get frustrated or angry with us back and to be like, yeah, I could see, I could see that. You, you have a right to be angry at me. I'm, I'm glad you told me. I mean, that's so therapeutic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's, it's our job to somewhat mirror what would be kind of the ideal parent child dyad where the child gets to express, gets to feel, and the parent gets to contain and hold and attune and reflect. Um, and so then the, the child to learn like, oh, okay, these emotions are safe to feel. Um, there might be healthier ways to express them, but at least I know that they're valid and they have a purpose. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it's pretty common otherwise for 
parents to give different messages, whether direct or indirect, that certain emotions aren't okay and that will not, certain emotions will not be tolerated, like anger and sadness. Yeah, yeah. And they found even more recently that by the time a child is one years old, it already can attune to what emotions will receive a negative affect. Um, so by the time a child's one, they can dis- disconnect from their own sadness or anger if they see that it upsets their primary caregivers. Wow. Mm-hmm. I can imagine how confusing that is in if you get a consistent response that anger or sadness is not okay, but then even the this insecure attachment type or this unpredictable response of sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's really not okay. And I can imagine how hard that must be for somebody, especially years later coming to therapy. Absolutely. It's really, it takes a lot um, for someone to be able to get to that point where they can access and then express those emotions that have not been held or received well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like that's where a lot of the important work is, is within the relationship. Yeah, I, I, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have the same priority you know, whether I'm writing it in informed consent or explaining it on my website, I, I say above all, the relationship is where all of this work is going to happen, at least to start with. Like, that's where the foundation of the therapy is going to be built. Yeah. Uh, and I think the hopeful thing is, like, knowing whether we're in short term or whether we have clients that terminate prematurely, Um, Like we can have this ideal relationship, but what I love is how um, love and safety and all of these things are visceral experiences. So even if a client experiences that once experiences, like I said something and your face didn't turn against me or your, your body remained open towards me, I really believe that that's going to stick with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you move with your clients? I do. Yeah. Um, Sometimes, especially if it's accessing more um, scary emotions or feelings where if they say, you know, if I were to express this, I think I would like grimace or I'd want to yell. Then I offer like, would it be helpful if I also yelled or grimaced and offer a sense of reflection and um, mirroring what what I see and what I experience on them? Yeah, that's where my mind went to is this mirroring experience. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because a lot of times, like, I've had clients explain, like, oh, I would want to do this, but I couldn't do that. It would look silly or it would look ridiculous. And then even if they don't do it, if I do it, and then I'm like, what was it like for you to see me do it? They're like, well, it was just normal. And I'm like, Huh, interesting yeah. that, that it gets to be normal for me. But of course, it's it's story. It's what's learned of like, I can't emote, I can't express. Um, and so I think getting to see it can also be helpful before there becomes a time when it feels safe enough to express it. Yeah. And even just the experience of witnessing your own story in somebody else is really powerful. And, you know, I, I'm thinking about a time where 
I had a client who didn't want to move, but she was okay with drawing. And so she drew a certain experience of hers and I had encouraged her to put it into movement, but she didn't want to. So I asked her if it was okay if I could move it. Mm-hmm. And I did. And she's like, wow, that was really intense. <laughs> it was kind of a realization that, you know, her, her experience was really intense and very chaotic. And it was like a lot of going in circles and multi-directional and it was a lot and I think that was powerful for her to see it on me and for also for her to have that visceral experience of wow this is what I felt when I saw my story yeah Yeah, absolutely one of the the things that I love about um the work that we do in Uganda is that it's it's culturally very shameful to talk about negative or or difficult things that have that someone has experienced Um, But what we found is if they're able to kind of draw a picture or representation of their life and then move through the space and embody different feelings, different memories, they feel safe enough to do that and to express it. And we've heard participants say, I was able to receive empathy, but I didn't have to tell you what happened. Um, And then what we'll usually do is after someone has done that, will actually give them the opportunity to say, do you want someone to do it with you? And someone will go through the whole process with them and mimic each of the different postures or movements that they do and kind of have this embodied sense of witness. Um, And that has been really therapeutic for them as well. Yeah, that's so powerful. Yeah, it's so interesting how like I see movement and body exploration as something so much deeper and more vulnerable than using words in in some ways, but because it's a language that not everybody can understand in the same way as words, it can sometimes feel less threatening. Like that's more okay than saying, I feel sad. Yeah, absolutely. And just how even like culture or the implicit messages become so embodied, like, Another thing that fascinates me is um, we have this exercise that I do with my clients or in groups, uh, for lack of a better term, we just call the ball exercise. Um, And someone will hold like a big giant exercise ball and they can name or just act out an emotion um, using the ball. And then they pass it to someone and that person moves and acts out how watching the other person made them feel. So it's like kind of the synchronicity thing. Um, and I've done it probably nearly a hundred times in around the Seattle area. And everyone always like, you know, names their emotion, passes it, names their emotion, passes it. Every time we've done it in Uganda, at some point along the exercise, one person will say, connected. And they'll hold on to the ball and they'll move around and the entire circle will put their hands on the ball. And it's just such this beautiful picture of how like a communal culture embodies such a connectedness. Uh, It's been really amazing to get to witness. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. And you said that most of your the foundation of your work was created in Uganda through your 
practices there and just kind of experimenting with what movement <laughs> exercises? Pretty much. Yeah. I moved to Uganda when I was like 19. Um, and I had been a dancer my whole life. And I got connected just by meeting someone on the street with this Ugandan dance crew that was performing traditional uh, choli, which is the tribe that I work with there, just performing a choli dances and songs. Um, and so they were like, you're a dancer, come join us. And just like adopted me into this dancing group. Uh, and I started noticing over time that a lot of dance group were performing better socially, academically, uh, than a lot of other kids in the village. And so it just piqued my curiosity to say like, what is it about this? Um, and so a lot of the, the different movements or ideas came out of what I was able to experience working with uh, different people in the village and, and just learning from them, as well as grad school and kind of researching more the components to movement and body and why it's important to have these expressive therapies. Yeah. How would you sum that up? <laughs> why it's important? Yeah. <laughs> Um, when I think about trauma, I feel like it, the image that comes to mind is getting stuck or stagnant and this replication, whether it's unconsciously or consciously, somatically, relationally, like we tend to relive our trauma. And I see that as our unconscious communicating to us. Like it's kind of like an itch, like you just keep scratching. And so there's something that I think is drawing our awareness to that. And, I, and I've seen through neuroscience or through trauma research or even energy work, like all of these fields kind of point to experiences are stored in our bodies. And if we don't have an expressive way to release them, they'll stay there. Um, and we're finding more and more correlation between suppressed emotions or negative experiences and even later in life, um, autoimmune diseases or other health disorders um, when our body has not been able to release a, a lot of toxins or feelings or things that it's been festering for a long time. Yeah, and what it comes down to is stress is this vicious cycle of unhealthiness that occurs in the body in a lot of different ways, like a lot that you just mentioned. And I mean, stress is a pretty general term, but any, I mean, anything stresses us out these days pretty much. I mean, you could look on your phone and see something you don't like that's stressful or you're stuck in traffic and the way that our bodies respond these days to stress is a lot of times it's chronic and if we don't take care of that it leads to a lot more chronic issues i definitely see that there's been a neglect of of bodies of rest of processing through different experiences like you were just saying like the daily stressors um, and when it when it triggers our body's response it, what's meant to be short circuits um, that are literally just like blowing up all day, every day. Um, it's, yeah, it's wreaking havoc. Yeah, because, yeah, tiny amounts of stress are healthy for us. That's how we evolved right. and that's who we are on a foundational level of like experiencing stress and having that 
help us survive, but we're not supposed to feel stress all the time and all day long. So on the on the most basic level, yeah, we need to rejuvenate and express and release. And I, I like how you were talking about awareness. Like if we're not even having the awareness of how stress is showing up in our bodies, then it's hard to take care of it. Yeah. And I think what can be so insidious about stress is that we can almost get addicted to to cortisol or to adrenaline. And so it's like, when I'm already feeling stressed, what do I do? Oh, I grab my phone and start scrolling through Facebook, which makes me more stressed. And then it just kind of becomes this snowball thing of avoiding like, oh, wait, my heart's beating really fast. Like my stomach's in knots. Like, let me take five minutes and 10 to that. Instead, we spend 12 hours trying to avoid or ignore that. Yeah. Do you get a lot of that feedback? Like, I know what I need to do. I'm starting to become more aware, but it's hard for me to put it into action. Totally. Yeah. I not only get that feedback from others, I know that feedback all too well myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's like I can tell clients all day long, you know, go express, go move. And then I go home and like eat ice cream and watch three Netflix shows, you know? (laughs) um, And so I think it's, I love, I think that's what excites me so about this podcast. We need a community of people Um, because I think it's, it's, it's more of a, systemic and cultural issue at this point of like I know from myself I I can feel guilty if I have a day of rest or even a few hours of rest because I see everyone else running around and so I think there's this implicit pressure of like that's just not what we do and so I think to be able to have support systems and communities where we can encourage each other and say like your body's important your body deserves rest like we deserve rest. Like, I think that's really important in breaking some of these really difficult habits. Yeah, absolutely. That was, it's reminding me, referring to Amber Gray's episode, which episode number 10 on on this podcast, where she says, if she could impact the White House, she would implement nap time. (laughs) Like, it was, it was that, it was that simple, but of course it embedded in the theories of needing to have our nervous systems rest and for us to take a break and regulate. And uh, as Christina Devereaux said, to pause in order to ignite creativity and move forward. Absolutely. Cause it's our, it's in our resting state where we're able to dream, to plan for the future. Like if we're only in fight, flight, freeze mode, we're, we're not even capable of doing that because our body is saying we just need to survive this minute. Um, and so I think that there's so much more potential that can come out of us creating space for ourselves to, to dream, to imagine, to create, to cultivate. Um, but it's going to require kind of a, a reining in of our time and our energy and our resources. Yeah, definitely. For anyone listening, what are some some pieces of advice that you would give to start developing more self-awareness and putting those experiences into action, those, those learned lessons? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I would encourage people to start small, like start with five minutes a day of, of noticing and becoming aware of your breathing, of 
what the chair feels like underneath you or the floor. Um, just becoming mindfully aware of your body for five minutes a day. Uh, what are the thoughts that come up as you spend time not doing something um, and not having judgment for the thoughts that come up, but just noticing and becoming aware. Um, and then I really think it's important to have some form of physical exertion or expression. Um, I think for everybody that could look different. Um, that could look like dance, that could look like yoga, that could look like running, could look like karate, some way that your body is actually burning off the stress and the energy that you're holding all day long. Um, I think those would be the first two main things that I would encourage people to start with. Yeah, definitely. And if on the flip side, if anyone has a tendency to be really, really active and do a lot and not slow down, then that probably depends on which one you kind of go to first. Like I have a tendency to do way too much and uh, I need to slow down and take a break and allow myself to binge watch a little bit. <laughs> binge watch totally. Netflix. Yeah. Totally. That's a yeah. very good point. <laughs> but I, I know that a lot of people spend a lot of time sitting and whether that's, you know, your job that kind of puts you in that situation, whether you have to sit all day in front of a desk or just be more immobile, it's so important for so many reasons to move your body in some way, do something hands on, like you said, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I think also like realizing where little changes could be made of like, if I sit at a desk all day, could I get an exercise ball that I can sit on? Or could I have a standing desk or making more intentional even how we're having to do our activities that we're doing? Yeah. Are you sitting on an exercise ball now? I am. I've, I've noticed a little. <laughs> I'm like saying that. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. You got to be a, a role model for, for what there you, you pre practice what you <laughs> preach. <laughs> Yep. No, I try. I try. Or yeah. like, especially, you know, um, when I have clients for a while back to back, like trying to even get out if it's just a 10, 15 minute walk, just stretching the legs, doing some stretches in my office, just letting my body physically release, uh, especially when I think we're in serving professions or caretaking roles where we're holding a lot for other people to get to kind of shake that off and create a ritual of self-care, I think is vitally important for us to be able to be good at what we do and not lead to burnout. Yeah. And even the action of walking, taking a walk, it changes your perspective. I mean, if you're sitting in the same place all day, you have a limited perspective of, you know, what's around you. But when you take a walk and you you know, you pass by people, you can make eye contact and that socialization, that social connection, lower stress and can engage more of your parasympathetic nervous system and changing your perspective and widening your view and taking in different kinds of information can spark some different movement, you know, literally and creatively. Totally, totally. Yeah, I think it's so it's so important to kind of to do that to make it accessible. You know, when when we do have professions or things where we're able 
to do it all day. I think it can be easy for someone who works at, um, you know, a corporation or a desk job to think like, well, that's nice for them, but that's not something that's attainable for me in my career. And so I think to, to break it up, like I love, I loved even what you and Hannah were talking about about nature too, of just like our need to have fresh air and connection to natural things and just what a big difference that that can make too. Yeah. I mean, going outside too changes the smell, introduces different sensations and that again, sparks different kinds of movement in the body. Like Mm -hmm. smelling something really nice makes you move another way or breathe in deeper. And it's really good to change things up. And I think it's being aware of that, like how different people's perceptions or awarenesses are going to change depending on what they do. And like, We've done the same exercise in Uganda, both inside and outside, um, and asked people, you know, like, did you prefer doing it inside? Did you prefer doing it outside? And and many of the people said, you know, when we were in like an old school building um, and we had certain people say, you know, I was abducted into the war in a school building. So I didn't want to do it inside. It was much easier for me outside. And conversely, we had other people say, well, I was actually taken out from the garden. So I felt a lot safer being inside and just being able to kind of adapt to what we're needing and what's kind for us. Yeah. Yeah. So important to address the individual needs and That's so hard, too, when you're working in a group. Like, some people really don't like the door being closed, and some people really want that door closed, even with lights. Um, Some people really don't want the lights on. Some people want it half on, half off, or it all contributes to the sensations of the individual. That's why it's so important, the work that you're doing of just noticing sensations and noticing patterns in different kinds of situations, even on the tiniest scale of, you know, lights, indoors, outdoors, and how important it would be for everyone to really understand what triggers them, what makes them feel safe, and what can help build resiliency and recovery. Yeah, because I think our our ultimate goal shouldn't be you know, okay, being inside triggers you, let's always avoid that. I think our goal should be, okay, being inside triggers you, how can we learn to moderate those uh, those feelings, those sensations, those memories that come up and, and work through them enough that your triggers don't need to control your life anymore. Um, but you can say like, oh, gee, that man's shirt really reminds me of my abuser and I feel knots in my stomach. Um, but being able to to come back to breath, come back to tactile, and, and creating that self-soothing. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time and, yeah. and for your discussion. It's really important work. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, Jenny. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Don't forget to check out the podcast episode notes on your app to find the links for all the giveaways. And I wish you good luck and see you next time.